Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Ones and Twos Foreign Policies Economics Podcast. Every week, we take two different data points. We tell you how they explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's economics editor, joining you from Berlin, Germany. As always, with us from his studio in New York is Adam Twos. Hi, Adam. Good to be here. This week's news data point is three. That's the number of winners of this year's Nobel Prize in Economics. The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has today decided to award Sveriges Riksbank Prize in Economic Sciences in memory of Alfred Nobel. The award was shared by three U.S.-based economists, David Card, Joshua Angrist, and Guido Imbens. What they have in common is their contribution to what's been called the credibility revolution in economics that started in the 1980s and 90s. The revolution made the science of economics more scientific. It allowed economic policy advice to be based on real-world experiments. It turns out David Card got his Nobel for the way he applied these experiments to labor policy, including the question of whether raising the minimum wage leads to significant job losses. Our results really make a lot of sense. Our, my findings on the minimum wage, for instance, make much more sense in this world where employers have a lot of discretion in what wage they set. He looked at the data from experiments back in the 80s, and the answer he got was no, which suggests lawmakers wouldn't have to worry too much if they increased the pay of workers. But first, I want to understand why there was this credibility revolution in economics in the first place. The way I remember it from history class back in college, the natural sciences had a scientific revolution back in the 16th century. They figured out the importance of designing experiments, scientific method, all of that stuff hundreds of years ago. So, Adam, what was the holdup for economics? Yeah, the slogan under which the credibility revolution got its start in the 1980s was taking the con out of econometrics, econometrics being the branch of economics that uses statistical techniques to test economic propositions. At the time, in the 80s, the bad old days, from the viewpoint of the reformers, folks took statistics that looked right, calculated correlation coefficients, and hey, presto, you got yourself an empirical proof of your proposition. That's kind of an unfair caricature, but that's sort of the folk memory of that period in the 50s, 60s, 70s, when econometrics got going. And this stuff mattered. One of the most influential and controversial studies was one that appeared to demonstrate the efficacy of the death penalty, the resumption of executions in the US in the 1970s, as a way of deterring crime, so that the stakes were extremely high. And so what did this group of Nobel-winning economists figure out? How did they crack the code for designing economic experiments? Well, one thing they did was they started reading medical journals. Uh, they realized that you can actually design experiments in the mode of controlled drug trials, even in economics. You can apply a treatment and, and see what happens. 
and use randomization, for instance, to isolate the effect of the treatment you're applying, as opposed to other factors that could also influence the result. So one famous study distributed cash benefits to randomly selected expecting mothers in Mexico, contingent on participation in prenatal care, nutritional monitoring of children, and so on. And the randomness is important here, since if you advertise for volunteers for a trial like that, the folks that would tend to show up would be the mums that were predisposed to be helicopter parents. So you'd discover that handing out these benefits with conditions produced the benefit of good parenting, whereas in fact, all you were doing was discovering that offering folks the chance to participate in a trial like this would select for good parents. So randomized trials eliminate the effects of, as it were, extraneous factors. You actually get to focus on the effect of the benefit and the conditionality. And as a result of that, so-called progressive payments are now in use in dozens of other middle-income countries around the world. Another thing that they were really keen on doing is identifying the causal driver and the direction of causation. So not just the particular factor that's working, but to ensure that that's the one that's doing the causing. So you might, for instance, hypothesize that a flow of migrants will tend to depress wages in the labor market and drive unemployment up as the new workers come in. But your problem in testing that is that migrants are smart. So they'll only migrate to places where their arrival will not have that effect. They look for booming labor markets to move to. So the standard proposition that migrant labor coming into a labor market would drive wages down and unemployment up was hard to prove because folks were, as it were, already anticipating it. So what you needed was an exogenous shock. And David Card, early on in his career, seized on what's called the Mariel boat lift in Miami in the spring of 1980, when Castro suddenly enabled about 125,000 Cubans to flee by boat to the US. Now, the beauty of this as a natural experiment is that you can be pretty certain that they weren't calculating those Cubans, whether this was a good moment to leave or this was a particularly excellent time to go to Miami. They were just getting out of Cuba. And what Card showed is that even under those circumstances, there's no evidence that the standard pessimistic conclusion about migrants depressing wages and driving up unemployment held. In fact, if anything, even despite this influx of migrants, wages in Miami did rather better than they did in other cities at the same time. Okay, but let's go back to Card's minimum wage research. Uh, what kind of experiment did he design there and what conclusions exactly emerged? Yeah, this is work that Card did together with the late Alan Kruger, who most people think would have shared the prize with Card if he was still alive. Card has paid tribute to his collaborator in recent days. The basic idea that they explored is the fundamental proposition shared by conventional economics, that a high minimum wage will crowd out workers because basically it will render them uneconomic to employ because their productivity will be too low relative to the wage. And that sets up a painful trade-off, right? Social justice by way of the minimum wage on the one hand as at the expense of unemployment. So how do you test whether that trade-off is actually real? You need to see what happens when you change the minimum wage, when you shock a labor market with a higher minimum wage. And unfortunately, in the 80s, in the Reagan era, there was not really a lot of action on America's national minimum wage. But some liberal states were responding by introducing regionally specific um, minimum wages. And that's what Card and Kruger seized on as their natural experiment. And in particular, they... They took New Jersey in 1992. Kruger worked at Princeton. New Jersey raised its minimum wage from the level of $4.25 to the breathtaking level of $5.05. And what they did was to look at 
matched pairs of fast food restaurants in Jersey on the one hand, in Pennsylvania on the other, to see what the impact of this minimum wage uh, hike was. And they couldn't actually detect any negative effect on employment. How could that be, you could say? Well, it's consistent with the idea that employers were previously underpaying their workers. They were using bargaining power in their local labor markets to take advantage. They were capturing too much of the employee's productivity. And so the minimum wage had the effect not of destroying jobs, but of forcing employers to give back that surplus. And, and this really was a sensation. And it was, and it was compounded by the fact that Card and Kruger did something that's quite unusual for economists. They actually wrote a book called Myth and Measurement, and that became hugely influential. So I would not suggest telling people in New Jersey or Pennsylvania that they're effectively uh, the same or exchangeable in an experiment. But uh, regardless, um, how did these results from CARD's research impact policy exactly? Because it does seem to me like people still think minimum wage increases could lead to job loss. You see that argument being made by politicians, or you could even hear that in normal conversation with people one knows. I mean, has CARD's news from his research not reached them yet? Or are there economists making other experiments on the other side and, and showing different results? So, so Card's a Canadian, and so he's somewhat removed from the American policy process. He's also adopted, personally, a rather restrained stance in public, refusing partisan alignment. Uh, so it wasn't so much Card as his co-author, Alan Kruger, who really carried these insights into government. He was the chief economist at the Department of Labor under Clinton. And then under Obama, he was both assistant secretary at the Treasury and then chair of the Council of Economic Advisers. So if the Democrats have converted, in a sense, to a position of driving a high minimum wage as a key tool of policy, there's no doubt at all that it's by way of his influence in particular that that's happened in the mainstream, not just on the left. It, it should, however, be said that this work is hotly political and not just that. Right? If empirical economics lives by the sword, then it also dies by it. And a recent meta review of work on minimum wage studies and their impact on labour markets since the 1990s, reviewing over 50 plus publications, found that on balance, they in fact did tend to yield negative elasticities. In other words, higher minimum wages did in fact tend to on balance negatively impact employment. Uh, and this overview itself, as far as I know, not yet published in a peer review paper, but nevertheless, a useful overview concluded that the Card and Kruger results from the early 1990s were outliers. But it should also be said that those elasticities that they found, the negative elasticities around which a lot of the studies cluster, were generally quite small. So that the result may be that not so much that high minimum wages have zero impact on employment, but that they have very small impact on employment in many cases. And in that case, the trade-off is worthwhile, right? So a small negative employment effect could be traded off against um, the social justice you achieve by a better wage. And you could then compensate the negative employment effect by running the economy hot, for instance. So why this Nobel Prize is not controversial is not so much the specific results of the uh, Card and Kruger work on the labour market as the fact of the credibility revolution, the methodological breakthrough. And economists in general love that because it makes them feel more scientific. Well, that actually leads right to my last question, which is whether this comparison of economics as a science to other sciences really holds up. Should we be thinking about 
economics, more like, I don't know, more like a humanistic field, like literature or humanities where, you know, we have theories, but they're politically relevant, but not really authoritative. Yeah, I mean, sticklers will actually point out that the Nobel Prize for Economics is not really like the other Nobel Prizes. This is actually the... Yeah, I always found that really pedantic. Yeah, it's really I, I, pedantic. I mean, you know, you know it is. It's a Nobel Prize. It, yeah, for right? crying I mean, out loud. But I mean, I, I think it's reasonable to say that at a small scale, like this better study of, you know, minimum wage studies shows that we can actually narrow this down. We can we can have a pretty good shot at trying to specify what the conditions are under which a high minimum wage will have a big as opposed to a small impact on labor markets. You can do that kind of thing. I'm not sure that we can achieve the same kind of certainty. I would be quite skeptical about the idea that we can achieve the same kind of certainty for really big, complex macroeconomic questions that are fast moving, that don't permit this kind of study. Like, you know, is inflation after pandemics transitory? That's unlikely to be the sort of question that you can easily perform this kind of study on. Um, and this goes, in a sense, to the debate about the credibility revolution, because as much as many economists love it, not everyone does. Not because anyone approves of bad old style econometrics, where people were just paying loosey-goosey with the numbers and not being serious about the studies that they were doing. But the, the real issue is what price we pay for the incredibly sharp and intense focus on methodology and precision of causal identification in the current mode in the last couple of decades, because often what it forces social scientists to do is narrow the questions they ask. They may, in other words, have a great answer, but they have a very precise answer to a very small question in the end. Okay, we will, uh, we will leave it there and be right back. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc., and uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain. And, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Welcome back to Ones and Twos Foreign Policies Economics Podcast. We're going to shift now to our data point beyond the headlines, and it's 50. That's the price in euros that it cost to emit a ton of carbon in Europe back in May, at least according to the EU's emissions trading scheme. That's Europe's version of what Americans call cap and trade. The idea here is you can combat climate change by auctioning off permits for the right to emit carbon. 50 euros, again, that's the price in May, although it's gone up since then, is an important threshold. Because at least according to a recent analysis by the International Monetary Fund, if that price were achieved by just Europe and five other big countries by the year 2030, it could keep global warming down below two degrees Celsius. For several years now, the stated goal of international climate talks has been to stop the planet from warming an additional two degrees Celsius. One of the countries that would have to join Europe in that effort is the United States. So people in the U.S. don't really talk about cap and trade anymore. Uh, You hear the administration in Washington under President Joe Biden talking about regulations on industries like car manufacturing, all sorts of investments in renewable energy that they want to make. But I don't know, the last time I heard the phrase cap and trade coming out of Washington was probably back in 2009 when the Obama administration took a stab at it. Under my plan uh, of a cap and trade system, electricity rates would necessarily skyrocket. It didn't work out. But Europe has actually had one of these programs for a while now. Adam, do you want to start by telling us how the program got started? Yeah, it's kind of an ironic story because the idea came from the US. It was uh, an idea cooked up by American economists in the 70s. And then the Bush administration of the late 80s, early 90s did one with uh, sulfurous admissions. And then the the idea was pushed really hard by uh, American think tanks, NGOs in the 1990s. And folks like the idea because it seems like a an efficient way of dealing with an environmental problem, basically announce how scarce the quotas for emissions are going to be, and then allow markets, businesses to compete with each other for the right to pollute. And they will then amongst themselves sort out what the most efficient way is to achieve the best reduction. But Europe is the one really large economic block where a system like this caught on. California has a more limited system in the US, But for Europe, it covers about half of all of Europe's emissions. It was introduced in 2005, and it's focused on industry and power generation. And those account between them for about half of all emissions. And they're they're pushing now to extend it to a wider variety of sectors. So the crucial missing bits are transport, maritime aircraft, people's cars, uh, domestic heating, those kind of segments. And all in all, the sense that Europe is now moving determinedly towards decarbonisation is driving this price up because the more serious you get about environmental policy, the more precious is the right to pollute for industry and for other sectors. 
Wait, Adam, I, I want to slow down here just a bit, because this program, you said it started in 2005, and the data point that we have that we're focusing on is 50. That's the important threshold that Europe managed to meet this May. But is this a way of saying that the EU program wasn't working for its first 16 years until this May? I mean, at least not as far as combating climate change goes. Yeah, one of the reasons that cap and trade is so unpopular in, in the United States right now is not just that you can't get it through Congress, which is what Obama discovered in 2009-10, but also that the European experience with systems like this has been quite checkered. Um, because the idea, of course, is that you take the burden off the politicians in the first instance. You know, you set the cap and then you let the markets decide. But of course, the rubber hits the road when you have to decide on how large the cap is and how you distribute the original allocation of certificates to pollute. And the Europeans basically fudged it. Um, so they introduced the system in 2005, handed out a bunch of free certificates to their industries that would be severely affected by this, dodging the political bullet from introducing the system, then discovered that the certificates were practically worthless. So the system imploded in 2007. But what you've got to credit the Europeans with is trying and trying again. So we're now in the fourth phase of the system, and they are slowly basically biting down on the tough issues, which are to limit the number of certificates in the system and to commit credibly over the long term to progressively tightening it. And that's why markets have driven the price up to where it is right now. The highest it's ever previously been has been about $30, $35. And we're now closer to $60 as of uh, 2021. So this is interesting. I mean, it's ostensibly a free market program, as you were saying. I guess that's why it seemed attractive in the first place. Elegant, self-regulating. But I guess, as is often the case, a lot comes down to how the market is structured by the government in the first place. I mean, is that why it went off track at first? Because, you know, the, it's a bit like, you know, squeezing a balloon or whatever. You, you, you reduce the political problem on one side. You, you, you no longer have to, as it were, regulate to reduce emissions. You kid yourself. But to achieve that effect, you, in fact, do have to cause people to pay for emissions. In, in effect, in fact, the, the European system became a complete boondoggle in its first iteration because they were handing out certificates for free to people who could then sell them for good money whilst the market still commanded a price. The condition of this system working is that you actually tighten the supply. It's a bit like central banking and money, that money has to be scarce for it to have a value. And what they've progressively done is to reduce the amount of certificates which are issued. They've limited the amount that businesses can bank. In other words, transfer from one period to the next. For the electricity generating sector, it's already a relatively tight system. So 100% of the certificates are auctioned in that sector the generators have to buy them. And this is exercising a notable pressure on electricity generation in the EU to clean up its act, reduce the amount of coal it uses. But it's going to be tough when it comes to sectors like steel, what's left of the steel industry in Europe and sectors like cement, where there is a lot of emissions and they will have to curtail. So it's not as though America has a monopoly on you know, climate politics and hardball climate politics. There isn't that much climate denial in Europe, but there is certainly self-interested business groups that want to avoid paying heavy prices. So what accounts for this shift in the politics? Is this pressure from consumers balancing out pressure from industry groups? It does come down to politics, I think. In, the, in Europe right now, 
climate is a winning political issue. It's not 100%, it's not consensus, but um, many parties of the centre, the centre-right, the centre-left, see climate as a, a winning political issue. And so anyone in the business of polluting has got to face the fact that they're running against serious political headwinds. There is the real risk that in future the EU will actually make good on the commitments it entered into under the Paris Agreements in 2015, that is to cut, and it has subsequently doubled down on, which is to cut emissions in Europe by 55% by 2030. So if you're in the polluting business and you know you're going to need those certificates somewhere down the line, and you all of a sudden have to reckon with the fact that the politicians, all the way from conservative figures like Angela Merkel to the Green parties and the left-wing parties in Europe with the ominous figure of Greta Thunberg, you know, sort of lowering down their necks, are actually now serious about this problem, then almost as a precaution, you have to buy these certificates. Um, Airlines in Europe, which are subject to the system for their intra-European travel, hedge, literally they buy future contracts against the price of these certificates. And then it becomes self-sustaining because the higher the prices of the certificates go, the more attractive it becomes for companies to find low-carbon low emissions um, technologies that allow them to economize. One of the other things that drives the prices in these markets is how, in a sense, successful they are, right? So insofar as they actually produce and prompt companies to cut their emissions, the demand for the certificates goes down. So the market has to be constantly adjusted, equilibrated, balanced out by the official agencies to reduce the number of certificates in circulation and to keep the price steadily going up to preserve this increasingly self-confirming, self-fulfilling general agreement that Europe is on the path to decarbonization. Adam, I also want to ask about one of the arguments I sometimes hear from conservatives in the US and also elsewhere. That's basically that these kinds of programs end up hurting consumers. Because if we're talking about industries paying for the right to emit carbon, that's going to eventually trickle down to increases in prices in stores for consumers. The, I mean, the most famous example of this, of course, are the, the Gilets Jaunes in France in 2018, the Yellow Vest protests. That was, it has to be said, an extremely unfortunate coincidence of different factors all coming together with a massive protest against a very unpopular government, Emmanuel Macron's government. At the time. Uh, so that was triggered by gas tax. I mean, gas tax, exactly. Yeah. France, France was doing a national gas tax. Um, prices for energy in, the United, in, in Europe, throughout Europe, are approximately twice as high as they are in the US across the board. And that is largely due to existing taxes, carbon prices, cap and trade type systems. The entire market is rigged in Europe. So it's a matter really of political entrepreneurship, whether you get a mobilization around this issue or not. It can fade into the background and disappear from the agenda because it is simply a fact of life that energy is much more expensive and people adjust to it by driving much smaller cars and having much better insulated houses, for instance. Um, but it can become a, a real flashpoint. Um, and it's certainly true that um, the screws have already been turned. Green, Germany, for instance, is famous around the world for the amount of green energy it produces. And that was all um, subsidized by way of, of charges that were imposed on consumers so as, in fact, a spare industry which didn't bear its fair share of the, of the costs. One of the fundamental constraints on all of this is not just politics, but competitiveness. So if you impose this kind of carbon levy on your industrial sectors, 
then one of the consequences, of course, is that you could be worried that you would lose competitiveness in global markets, which is why Europe is, is moving now to discuss and introduce a so-called carbon border adjustment so as to cushion Europe's uh, manufacturers against against the, the rising costs in its carbon pricing system. Okay, this is interesting. I mean, it sounds like you're saying that prices going up is inevitable. I mean, it can't be avoided. But whether consumers notice and whether it's salient in a political way, well, that's to be decided. Uh, it's itself a political question. I guess I so rarely hear that perspective. Usually increases in prices are just this big scare tactic in politics, but it sounds like increases in prices aren't necessarily a political disaster. Absolutely. And it depends very much on which groups of society you're talking about, right? So for comfortably off people who live in city environments who don't necessarily have to drive very much, the cost of gas is, is really an irrelevance for, for folks on lower incomes who have to commute long distances, of course. And that's true in Europe as well, in many societies. It's, it's not an accident that those protests happened in France because it's a big country, not densely populated by European standards, where in many parts of the country people really do have to rely on cars, motorbikes, vans to get around. Um, there, of course, it then suddenly can become very salient indeed. So the, there is indeed a politics about whether to politicise this question. Hmm. I guess the final question I have in mind, Adam, is about the politicians who are making these kinds of programs. Can they sell the benefits to their publics? I mean, can they point to concrete benefits? I'm always thinking with some environmental policies, you can sort of point to the river getting cleaned up or the skies getting a little cleaner. With climate change, it's all a little more amorphous. Maybe, maybe there are some disasters happening less frequently, but that's kind of a hard sell. So how do politicians in Europe sell the benefits of this kind of thing? It's a real ask. You know, I think in some ways, rather than endlessly frustrating, expressing frustration about the failure of politics to act on climate, one might ask oneself whether in a sense it's not amazing that they're taking it as serious as they are, because not only are the effects indirect, and they do largely consist of the avoidance of disaster, but the worst effects will, of course, be felt decades in the future. So what we're, what we're asking complicated societies with profound divisions, with profound inequalities to do is to take moderately painful action. It's not you know, vastly expensive, but to take moderately painful action now to avoid a disaster in the distant future. And, and that is unsurprisingly hard to sell. It's, it's also a gamble on global solutions because none of this will matter. What Europe does will not matter unless it's part of a global push. And the, the logic here is that you lead by example and if necessary, you also lead by pressure, by exerting pressure through carbon border adjustments on people who want to trade with Europe to clean up their act as well. So it's highfalutin politics, this. Mm. This, is, this is high-end complex um, politics. Yeah. Um, but it's something that the European political class is massively committed to. It's, in a sense, their answer to the question of, and the challenge of populism, which so preoccupied the European elite, really, from 2013, 2014 onwards. Huh. Well, you know, I have a baby crying in the background right now, and that kind of makes these intergenerational calculations you're talking about, Adam, a, a little more concrete uh, it's probably a reminder that I should get going, so I guess we'll end here. 
Okay, that does it for another episode of Ones and Twos. I'm Cameron Abadi. And I'm Adam Twos. Our podcast is a production of Foreign Policy. Our show is written by me and Adam. It's edited by Laura Rossbrow, Tellum, and Rob Sachs. Dan Efron is the executive editor for Podcasts at FP. You can contact us through podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or our Twitter feed. That's at ones and twos pod. As always, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple or your favorite podcast app. Give us a review. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.